Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists from all around the world. Now today we have Marty Friedman in replay. I spoke to Marty ahead of his Australian tour in 2019. This episode is brought to you by The Pedal Movie a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the Music Gear Marketplace, Reverb. I am super excited about this film. The pedal movie features nearly 100 interviews with people like Steve Vai, Peter Frampton, Jay Maskus, Billy Corgan, and more, including some of our Guitar Speak podcast alumni like Dweezil Zappa, Sarah Lipstate, Johnny Barmer, and Brian Wampler. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit www.thepedalmovie.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. You're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Now today I speak to phenomenal guitarist Marty Friedman. He's had an incredible career spanning over 30 years. We speak on the eve of his Australian concert and clinic tour. We have a great conversation. Marty is a super positive guy and uh, was a really engaged guest. So good to have him on the show. He talks about touring and sharing the spotlight with his killer supergroup. We talk about his 15 solo albums. Lessons learned after 10 years with Megadeth. How a move to Japan in the early 2000s made an incredible impact on his career. Talk about all his signature gear from Jackson, EMG and Angle. We talk about composition craft and what it is to continually grow as a musician. And it was really cool also talking about his partnership with Jason Becker. Not only the early shrapnel years, but we of course talk about that, but including playing on Jason's latest album, Triumphant Hearts. And there's much more in the interview as well. So let's jump straight in. Marty Friedman, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Nice to be here. Now, Marty, we're very excited that you are touring Australia in December. You've got four dates coming up in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne and Canberra. Is this your first tour as a solo artist to Australia? Yeah, it's my first time. And it's first time for my band too, so everybody's really, really excited about it. Um, I've been to Australia before, but never... With my solo band, and my band has never been to Australia, so they are beyond excited. You know, when you when you grow up playing music in Japan, being able to play in Australia is it's kind of like a dream that people have, but they never realize it. So my band is so thankful and so stoked to be able to come down and play. So we're just, uh, we can't wait to do it. Excellent, excellent. Now, when you say your band, your super band, is this the same band that's on your latest album, The Live One Bad MF? Yeah, some of the members are, yes. Um, 
the main uh, the main member from that is uh, Kiyoshi, the bassist. She's uh, she's been in my band for wow about six seven years now, and uh, she's just a powerhouse. And uh, one thing about my band is uh, when you see us play, you know maybe you came to the concert to see me play, but uh, I think you're going to leave the concert talking about my band. And um, they outshine me every single night. I mean, they're just such a powerhouse that uh, it's really a super band, and uh, I love it when they outshine me. You know, it gives gives the people a feeling that they're seeing a band, not just a guitar player. You know, I really make a very big point to make it feel like a band rather than just, you know, a guitar player playing music. I mean, it's a complete band experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you give a lot of space um, on that album, for example. There's a lot of space for the other guys. So, yeah, when Kiyoshi takes a part, um, yeah, the crowd goes nuts. She is fantastic. Yes, yes. Actually, live, there's even more space for, for everybody to uh, do their thing. And uh, the live album was 80 minutes. We, we did a, you know, a single CD, double album, and that's about 80 minutes, a little bit under 80 minutes, but we play about two hours, so... We had to cut a lot of things out just to make that live album. But the live album does give you a very, very good idea of the energy that uh, hopefully you're going to walk away with after the concert. And um, a lot of surprises. You know, we do crazy things sometimes. Sometimes we'll just bring a person randomly out of the audience to come and play with us. And um, I've got a whole separate rig set up for that one whenever I feel like making that happen. We just bring somebody up, somebody I've never met before, never seen before, and uh, and just uh, have them jam. And uh, it's, it's always uh, extremely entertaining when it happens. And <laughs> usually the guys are really, really good, but sometimes people just freeze up, and and that's equally as entertaining. So it, it's always a a fun point <laughs> of the concert when we decide to do it. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, when you talk about surprises, I was really excited to hear Dragon Mistress on the live album because that was from your first solo album, um, Dragon's Kiss, and then in the middle of it you launch into Hound Dog and somehow make it all work. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of room for us feeling what we want to do in that particular city, in that particular venue, in front of those people. You know, every audience is different and um even if we keep the set list kind of similar we always like to leave room where we could do something that only happens in that city and uh that's something that i've been doing with my solo tours forever so uh you know every night's going to be different and and since they added a show in melbourne you know we're going to have to do something different the second night and um you know we'll we'll make that up as as we go one one thing that struck me on 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 the live record um, is just part of your composition style, I guess. Something like Street Demon or Elixir, that stuff veers from very melodic, um, you know, almost pop rock or high energy, and then into intense metal riffs at the at the drop of a hat. That's you, you've never been afraid to jump between styles or different types of energy on a track. Well, I'm really uh, impressed to hear it that way. I really like to uh, to know that the, that's the way you're hearing it because that's really the way I'm intending to do it. I like to uh, have contrast. And um, I think 
one main thing that I strive for is to have really easy-to-remember melodies and almost happy melodies, but put in a brutal, violent metal context. Um, I just like, <laughs> yeah. I like that combination, cool. you know, and usually what happens is um, the sound of metal is very dark, it's very harsh, it's very hard, and so dark kind of scary melodic concepts work very, very well with that. Um, but I kind of like to force almost romantic melodies and, and happy, uplifting melodies within this very violent context. And it just kind of gives me chills sometimes when, when, when it gets done correctly, you know. And uh, so I like to experiment with that quite a lot. And uh, on the live album, like you said, Elixir and and Street Demon are good examples. I mean, the, the main themes are super melodic. I mean, it could be bubblegum pop music, for all I know, and, and but it's encased in these extremely violent riffs and uh, done with a lot of aggressive energy. So uh, that's a pretty good way to describe what uh, I'm doing and what I'm trying to do. You've released around 14, 15 solo albums since um, around 1988 from the early uh, Shrapnel record days. How do you keep developing and expanding? Because I, I read when you released Inferno in 2014, you said you know, it was a lot of work to get it together to where you wanted it to be. Then you had to do it all over again for Wall of Sound. How do you keep lifting the bar for yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point right there. When I did Inferno, that was the biggest, biggest leap in the evolution of whatever my music is. I mean, uh, usually I make kind of baby steps, but Inferno was a a big labor-intensive project, and and uh, I was extremely pleased with it, and uh, as was Wall of Sound. And so I think uh, I have to be realistic that I know that I don't want to repeat something that I've done before, and I have to be realistic that it's going to take a lot of work to do that after you've released 14 solo albums and done tons of band albums with other bands and tons of sessions and, and uh, singles here in Japan and to not repeat yourself and not kind of uh, mimic something that you've done in the past is very important to me and uh, so being realistic means that I have to know that I'm going to need to take a lot of time to do this stuff and Wall of Sound took 18 months to do and um, when that was done I knew that uh, I was going to need a lot of time to do anything after that so that's when the live album came out just kind of uh, not only document our live show but to give me some time to continue to write new material and um I'm still a ways off from doing my next record. Um, I want to get more touring in before that happens. Um, but the, the evolution, like you brought up, is an extremely important part of uh, my music and what I'm trying to create. And um, if I've already... There's no reason to, you know, re-release it. You know, of course, I will, I will want to do from all part, all points of my career when I'm playing live because that's the point of playing live. You do things from your catalog, but when it comes to releasing new music, 
it should be just that. It should be um, something new. And luckily, I've never had a kind of breakout smash hit record in my solo albums. It's all been, you know, it's all been very uh, reasonable and nothing has tanked too terribly badly, but nothing has like, you know, tore up the charts so much that I had to try to re recopy that for some reason. So um, as far as my musical goals, it's, it's really allowed me to uh, explore things exactly the way I want to do it. That's great. That's a great space to be in too. I guess it takes off any shackles off off you in terms of creativity. Don't get me wrong. Of course, I would love for one of my albums to uh, be a smash hit and uh, break all kinds of sales records. But uh, I really stay out of the results. And um, it's really the process of making the music is where I get the joy, you know. And, you know, and when people enjoy, when people wind up enjoying it, that's that's where I get the joy out of it. If I was to be chasing numbers and chasing um, people's approval, and it would be uh, even harder work than it already is. So uh, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm very happy with the the, the process of making the music. I was really happy to see you appear on Jason Becker's recent album as well, Triumphant Hearts. That must have been a cool thing for you to do. Absolutely. I mean, uh, whenever he calls, I just jump to whatever he wants me to do. And uh, he had me play on a couple songs of his album. And uh, on the title track to that, Triumphant Heart, he gave me a great melody to play. And uh, so I was so excited. Uh, it's just like the most delicious part of the song. I, I get to play the main theme uh, towards the end of the song when, when it comes to its uh, most exciting key modulation and climax. So, he, you know, gave me a really good solid vibe, uh, allowing me to play in that point of his song. What, what do you recall of the um, the early shrapnel days with Jason? Because you guys were really on the edge of that whole shrapnel records thing, which took off in that sort of mid to late eighties. Yeah, well, we really um, just did what we wanted to do, really, and we were not uh, too concerned with the other people on the label. And uh, to be completely honest with you, we didn't really want to be lumped in with a lot of the stuff that was on there, because to us, it did not seem very musical. It seemed like uh, a lot of people showing off and playing exercises and just uh, just kind of, uh, I don't know, there was a lot of uh, technique uh, displays and uh, acrobatics. And um, not to say that we weren't guilty of a lot of that. And uh, I believe that uh, we were, and probably if we had a chance to do it again, we would have... Uh, done it a little bit differently, but even still, I mean, uh, if you look at what our influences were at the time, it was nothing like what was influencing the other guys on that label. I mean, we weren't uh, very much influenced by uh, the traditional classical music like most of the other guys were. We were into really odd stuff like Stravinsky and uh, Philip Glass and, and things that were a little bit oddball and eclectic and and then there was foreign music we were both very much into uh foreign music and i was into japanese music and he was into indian music and then we both got into 
Indian and Japanese music and Chinese music. and So there's a lot of really oddball influences in there, and that might have had something to do with why we never really took off, because it was just such a strange blend of weird stuff. But uh, we really loved a lot of what we did, and um very proud of it, and I still... You know, there's a lot of stuff that I would definitely change, but uh, I'm still proud of that stuff. And and Jason really grew big time after all that musically. I mean, uh, he grew so fast. You know, I, I'd like to think that I grew a little bit at a time, taking baby steps and, and evolving. But uh, he grew like by leaps and bounds in a, in a scary, very fast way, and. Um, he started to really just become a brilliant composer. I hope you are enjoying today's interview. Now, this podcast is brought to you by The Pedal Movie, a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the music gear marketplace Reverb. Now, you know we love guitar pedals here on the Guitar Speak podcast, and we're super excited on the release of this film. The Pedal Movie explores how effects pedals and their builders have shaped modern music and guitar playing over time, from the fuzz pedal experiments of the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, through the shoegaze and indie rock of the 90s, and up to the modern day use of effects. Reverb also speaks with builders and leaders from more than 50 pedal brands to answer the big question, how did guitar pedals get so big? Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play and Vudu, for more info, check out thepedalmovie.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology. <clears throat> Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by master guitar teacher Joe Elliott. Now, I was a beta tester for the course, and as a music educator myself, I was very impressed by the logical layout and format of the course. Heavyweight guitarists such as Brett Garsett and Greg Koch have also endorsed the program. So check it out at www.fretboardbiology.com. Okay, back to our interview. Hey, it's interesting that you mentioned the Japanese influence on your playing then. I remember watching your instructional video and you're playing like a, uh, a five-note um, scale, Japanese influence scale, and then... Um, which is back in the day when everyone was doing the videos. But then if we fast forward to 2003, you make the big jump of moving to Japan and immersing yourself uh, in that culture and having a, a huge change in, in your career. Yeah. Or continuance, I should say, an evolution, yeah. perhaps is a better word. Yeah, it's really uh, taken a lot of unexpected and fantastic turns. And, and a lot of things that have happened here have allowed me to continue my career long after, you know, one would expect a musical career to last. And um, um, I think it started just from a, a slight passing interest in Japanese music. Even when I was a teenager, I just thought there were a lot of interesting things that if I understood them, I could uh, uh, have kind of expression on the guitar that I didn't see a lot of guys have. I mean, there were a lot of great guitarists out when I was a teenager, but it seemed like most of them were influenced by other guitarists. 
and um, they all kind of had a lot of guitar knowledge, but they didn't seem to have weird expressions. And I really found that when I started analyzing Japanese singing and Japanese traditional folk songs, I got all these weird expressions that I was able to do, and I was able to emote my guitar like a singer at kind of a young age, and I found that this was um, one way to separate me from other guitarists, and, and I thought that my favorite guitarists were the guys that you could separate, you know what I mean? You got the guys like Brian May, who you hear one note, you know it's him, and Van Halen, you hear one note, you know it's mm-hmm. him, so I, I thought that I found it when I was a teenager with Japanese stuff, so it just kind of uh, snowballed and snowballed until uh, uh, I finally, kind of unrelatedly, discovered Japanese uh, uh, current rock and pop and heavy music, and I just found it super exciting and wanted to be a part of that and moved to Japan, and a lot of uh, great lucky things have happened since then. Is it true that you could already speak Japanese? That you'd talk uh, before I moved here, yeah, I, I could already speak pretty well. It, it had been a hobby of mine for quite some time before I moved here, so I was pretty pretty fluent by by the time I moved here. And uh, obviously, once I moved here, and uh, I became completely fluent. But um, I was uh, definitely not having any problems with the language before I lived here, and that was a big point with me because uh, I didn't know if my language was good enough to actually live here, you know, and uh, so I I made a kind of little trial run, you know, I moved over here for a couple months, first of all, and and I wanted to make sure that my language skills were were enough, you know, because it's one thing to be able to, uh, you know, have a conversation or read a book, but it's another thing to, uh, you know, fill out uh, contracts and to make record deals and to uh, lease an apartment and open a bank account and uh, deal with those things. Yeah, absolutely. Just that day to day. Yeah, those yeah. things are the really difficult things. And uh, But when I got here, I found that uh, I, uh, in fact, had enough language skills to do it and um, and decided to make the jump. Amazing. Because I hear Japanese is one of the hardest languages to learn as well. So for you to do it as a hobby back in America with probably limited opportunity to practice it, that's that's very impressive. I've heard that, and, and it has been said that it's the most difficult language in the world. But I have to kind of disagree, um, only because I think all languages that are not your own are probably the same as far as level of difficulty, because... It's just this matter, it's a matter of how far you take it. You know, if you want to be conversational, maybe it is quite difficult. But I guess if you're going all the way in another language, they're all equally not your language. So uh, it's like saying which musical instrument is the most difficult. And uh, it all depends on how far you take it. And I think they're all equal because no one was born playing an instrument. So... uh, you know, I'd like to take credit and think Japanese is really super hard, but um, I think, you know, anyone who speaks any language other than the one they were born with has probably had a very similar time 
you know, learning the language. So I, I don't sure. think it's that much different. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Marty, you very famously spent around a decade in Megadeth. Um, a lot of people argue your time in the band was the strongest uh, time for that band. Um, that work's been really heavily documented, so I don't want to actually talk about that decade or so, but I'm just wondering what you took from that experience. You're on a, a major record label. Um, what do you take from, from all that experience that, that you carried on through your own career? Oh, well, every experience that that experience included is going to give you a lot of, uh, uh, not only knowledge, but a lot in the personal, you know, in your personal character um, that helps you grow. So, like, you know, being in any band, you're going to learn more about personal relationships than, than music. And, um... So I think what I took away from that particular experience was, uh, you know, I got to see, you know, the effects of uh, when you're selling records and when you're not selling records, because I could see both of those situations and the way you get treated. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about people and um, that knowledge has helped me immensely over every situation. Um, I've been in bigger situations than that since then, um, where responsibilities have been, uh, much higher and, um, I've been in smaller situations as well. So, um, everything kind of helps, you know, every, every unique situation, you know, if you take something away from it, it's going to help you later. And, uh, I have nothing but great experiences to draw on from that period of time and uh, really uh, it was a fantastic experience just like what came after it and um, it's all good to keep like some kind of long length in your career in something that is so fragile like the music business it's really important to uh, be aware of um everything that you learn from every experience and not, uh, and not forget important things, you know what I mean? Not, um, it's really hard to explain this, but I think, uh, you have to be open to learning things if you want to stay in something uh, as unstable as the music business. So you can't, um, have too much negativity. Um, you can't, um, you know, stay in a situation <clears throat> that you don't want to be in for too long. Um, you have to be very honest, and you have to uh, learn things and uh, and uh, adjust accordingly. And that's how you can keep the business for a long time. And so thankful that uh, you know I've been doing this since I was a teenager, and it just keeps getting more fun and more interesting and. And, and better all the time. So I think that's due to uh, just accepting a lot of interesting experiences. One uh, one thing from your Megadeth days was uh, your use of Jackson guitars. Now you're you're back with Jackson um, recently. There's a new signature model out. Um, tell me about that guitar. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic a fantastic instrument. Um, like like you said, I've been playing Jacksons before and. Uh, had a signature Kelly that was pretty uh, 
pretty well identified with me, and I, I love that guitar and still play it live. I still play Kelly's quite a bit live, and you can still get those, and they're wonderful acts. But when Jackson approached me to uh, do a new signature model, I really wanted to do something that uh, I had never done before, something new. Um, and uh, so I decided to uh, create the MF1, or, or better, better, um, better stated, let them create the guitar and let me, you know, smooth out the edges, so to speak. You know, they were making the guitar and they uh, consulted me on every part of the making of the guitar and send me prototypes and then I'd give my critiques and and send more prototypes and put them up in the studio and try them live. And at the end of the long process, um, they came up with the MF1, which is a super solid workhorse and uh, a very, very basic guitar. Not a lot of bells and whistles, but uh, it's a guitar that you can see from miles away and um, a really solid, consistent guitar that sounds very modern and good for playing melodies as well as progressive rhythms and it's a great axe cool i noticed it's got passive emg pickups you've you've been known to use the active emgs why, why the move to passive uh, again fortunate to have my signature model created by emg um i've been great friends with the emg company for several years and they've always helped me and they approached me about doing a signature pickup and uh, I knew that if I were going to do that, I wanted to do something different. And EMG is known for this uh, this uh, battery-operated, uh, very uh, identifiable heavy metal sound. That's a very good sound, but it's kind of uh, so identifiable that anybody who plays it kind of goes through the same... Uh, interpretation, you know, it kind of sounds the same on any guitar. I mean, it's such a strong, identifiable sound. It's a great sound. I love that sound, but uh, I wanted to do something that kind of amplifies the player's uniqueness more than the pickup's uniqueness, if you know what I'm saying. So I wanted to get something that um, was a very human-sounding pickup very organic, something that's going to bring out the odd nuances of the strange way that I touch the strings. And everyone touches the strings in their own way. I mean, it's really skin against metal. So everyone's skin is a little bit different, and everyone's touch is different. So I wanted a very uh, sensitive pickup, a pickup that was sensitive to those things, and actually amplifies the differences between people's playing um, to give, you know, as much as a pickup can possibly give, to give them some uniqueness. And uh, that's something I want to bring out of my playing at all costs. So um, same exact process as Jackson. They sent tons of prototypes, tried them, sent them back, and next thing you know, uh, they've got the, the Marty Friedman pickup, and it's it's a winner. I mean, uh and the thing is selling like crazy, and I'm, I'm really excited about that, but they did all the work. I mean, I basically just did a thumbs up and thumbs down on it. And they did all the technical work. <laughs> yeah. They did the real work, so it, it's it's a super, super pickup, and 
you can hear it all over the live album and you can hear it on wall of sound and it's it's just a super sounding piece of gear yeah it's cool on a live record when you go to quieter moments or not such high gain kind of moments you can still hear um that sensitivity you're talking about so that's that's really cool what do you um what will you bring to australia in terms of gear when you're hitting the road uh, you know i'm very fortunate to be decked out in signature gear so i'm gonna have my signature guitar with the signature pickups and uh, my tingle signature amp and uh and uh Everything that's got a signature on it, I'm going to play, you know, and uh, I, I'm very fortunate. <laughs> cool. You know, it keeps things very simple. And I have a very, very basic, uh, uh, very basic rig. It's just about plugging straight in. Um, I use little effects. If I use any effects at all, I might use an uh, auto filter by Maxon, which has been in my rig for forever and uh sometimes that happens and very very basic stripped down straight in straight out uh, i want all the nuance to be heard and and uh, especially since it's such an aggressive aggressive uh that uh, even the mistakes i want those to be heard because sometimes i get luckier with the mistakes than what i'm trying to play <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool I love it. I love it. Well, Marty, I know you've got other people to talk to today, so I need to let you go. But it's been wonderful to meet you, and we're really excited about the tour in December. And I'll I'll be seeing you at uh, the Crowbar in Sydney, December 11th. Well, thank you very much. It's been a really, really awesome chatting with you, and uh, looking forward to meet you in person over there. And um, hope to talk to you really soon. All right, there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Now, this podcast was brought to you by The Pedal Movie, the feature-length film all about effects pedals created by Reverb. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit thepedalmovie.com. The show was also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by ex-head of guitar at GIT, Joe Elliott. Check out fretboardbiology.com for more information. Alrighty then, you have been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling, and as the legendary German rocker Michael Schenker once told me, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.